take first watch. Hello, welcome to an all new episode of the First Watch podcast. Summer is dead, but seasons don't fear the reaper. I'm Zach, and I'm back here with Cole. How are you? I'm all right. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. We're back here for our second of three episodes about horror through the eras. We're doing our own eras tour to sync up with Taylor Theaters. (laughs) (laughs) And we've unwittingly roped our friend Morgan into coming on to help us discuss today through the grisly, gory nastiness of the 70s and 80s. Morgan, how are you? Hanging in there. (laughs) Today we're here to talk about, well, if you listened to our last episode, which was nominally about Jacques Tourneur's Cat People, you may already know, we're really talking about the progression of horror, particularly with a focus in American cinema. And today we're getting into, as I mentioned, the 70s and 80s, and our topic is Tobe Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre a movie that sort of splits the difference between sweltering August summertime and the frightful, spooky crispness of the autumn. For me, it just blends those two right together. And I really love it as a movie for this time of year where the temperature has finally dropped. But not for you, Cole. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) It can't be all, you know, you've already seen Anatomy of a Fall like four times and you have everything (laughs) else releasing over there. So we got to get a few Um, All right, I'll put up with the heat for now. But before we get into our discussion of knives and splatter and slasher icons, Morgan, what have you been catching up with lately? Just a couple of recent releases, one of which in time for the season, I finally got around to the A24 horror darling Talk to Me, directed by the Philippu brothers. I think they're brothers anyway. I don't know these people. Australian horror, so you know it's terrifying. Much lauded, much hyped release. I definitely enjoyed it. It was difficult getting to it as late as I did, just in the waves of hype around it and then subsequent immediate backlash around it. Uh, (laughs) as much as I tried and mostly succeeded in going in expecting nothing. It was interesting to just sort of navigate that because it feels like it's the kind of movie that depending on at one point in the runtime you're watching it, for me anyways, like all of these people are right at different points or another. The takeaway was ultimately positive, but uh, fairly mixed. I love the concept. There's some interesting formalism and cinematography. Uh, one of the movies it reminds me of the most is Event Horizon. Ah. Okay. In the sense that it dances around its most dangerous and interesting concepts in ways that are ultimately kind of unsatisfying. And also there's a scene where you get brief flashes of people in hell. Mm. I'm definitely very interested in seeing what these directors do next. They're doing a sequel, aren't they? Yeah, and that's disappointing. Hopefully they take it as a chance to just improve and expand on what they have here. Young horror directors like this, the ideal is that they sort of jump on as many opportunities and interesting new ideas that they have, but maybe a sequel is what will be best. And, you know, I will be tuning in regardless. Yeah, I think this came out in late July, like July 23rd. 
and then by the first week of August, they had already greenlit the sequel. Yeah, yeah. such is the nature of successful A24 horror. I hope it's called Talk to Me 2, except that it's spelled T-O-O. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> the hand with two fingers up. We're smarter than any executive in Burbank. I'll just say that. <laughs> well... I kind of like the ending, actually, like just how nasty it kind of got. Yeah, see, that's but... another thing where the, the sort of the hype got to me a little in the ending is because I kept hearing how cruel it was. And then I got to it and I was like, oh, that's not that bad. I mean, she kind of fucked around and found out. So what do we think is the horror movie of the year so far? Cool. Oh, God. And I'm really, really trying to think. Lot, at least. Yeah. It's Skinamarink for you? For me, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's I was trying right. to think like culturally what is probably going to be the one, and it's probably going to be Five Nights at Freddy's. Oh Christ! <laughs> is that real? Is that really <laughs> happening? I'm not convinced. There's a trailer. Yeah, I keep getting TV spots. It's pointing to almost twenty million dollars in previews on the Thursday wow. it opens. So like, okay, the hype I mean, is there. I mean, for me, it's Evil Dead Rise. I think Morgan's with me on that. Mine is actually uh, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. <laughs> All right, legit, legit, uh, but. Yeah, it is Evil Dead Rise firmly and resolutely. This is, has been a fairly middling year for horror thus far for me. Not to yeah. minimize Evil Dead Rise because I absolutely loved that one. But below that is Infinity Pool. And it's like a full 10 spots below that yeah. on my mm. ranked list for this year. So there's not really much in competition so far. Yeah, like I loved Skin of a Rank. I really like Evil Dead Rise. Um, I really like Crucera, the Bone Woman. Even liked the Nun too. But yeah, I've heard good things about When Evil Lurks. I'm looking forward to checking yeah, that out. Yeah, I've at heard some good point. things as well. I'm excited. This is I don't know if you'd call this horror. It's like suspenseful and exciting. I was pretty disappointed by No One Will Save You, yeah. which had a lot of buzz. The drop uh, on yeah. It's like an alien invasion thriller kind of deal. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, this isn't even a thing, but, like, El Conde's got, like, horror imagery. <laughs> it's probably the best-looking movie that you could kind of consider a horror movie because it's about a vampire. <laughs> We're really yeah, I, I haven't checked that out either. It's real good. Fucking Netflix. Yeah. It's real good. I'll say that. It rocks. There's a particular reveal that I had spoiled <laughs> for me. Uh... So if you can see it without hearing anything else... God bless. Yeah. All I know is Pinochet is a vampire. Yeah. I started cackling like a moron when that reveal happened because I was just like, oh, that's delicious. I thought I'll sidebar it. I'll send it to you somewhere. But I I thought that that person was an actress that we all know and love. It wasn't. But it reminded oh. me of a part that she did one time. Yeah. In a Bong Joon-ho film. That person actually was the queen in Spencer. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Morgan, do you have another one? Yeah, I'll shout out Netflix striking again this time with a film called Fair Play starring Alden Ehrenreich and Mm. Phoebe Dynavor. That's been marriage storied to death. Oh, Jesus. On Twitter. Yeah, there's like one particular like kitchen argument scene that just everybody's been posting and bitching about out of context. That's horrible. We are on very different parts of Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm not on (laughs) Wait, Cole, you haven't seen that? I haven't seen like anything about this movie. Oh. I just barely heard about it. Okay. Yeah. Netflix. Nothing on Netflix is real. No. Sorry, Fincher. Yeah. Sorry, Linklater. Yeah. I have the Irishman criterion, so it's not even right. like... I just bought a bootleg Blu-ray of Mank. I'm yeah. so sorry. Sales. <laughs> yeah, fair play. I've heard it called a romantic thriller. 
There is nothing romantic about it. It's set in the corporate world. The two leads are a couple keeping their engagement secret while working at super profitable company. Uh, I don't remember the specifics of it because it didn't really matter. But, you know, it's somewhere in the financial district in Manhattan and they're managing a lot of money. Their relationship here begins to deteriorate upon one of the couple getting a promotion and the other getting left behind. Mm. And for the first two acts, this is, I think, really excellently done. Mm -hmm. First time director Chloe Domont does a very good job operating in the sort of Soderbergh-esque lane in which the film is setting itself up in. And then somewhere in the third act, there's a turn taken in the plot that is just no... Like it sort of throws everything mm. into question. And as much as I really, really enjoyed the first two thirds or so, and even thought the ending itself was fairly well done, that paints everything in a really weird light that will eventually keep me from remembering the film particularly fondly. We've been joking around about it. The Netflix thing that we're talking about is basically just like you put a movie on Netflix and it disappears. Like it either gets a little bit of positive traction and you see a pop, but it'll always be from some third party source. Like it's just invisible. They just fade into that big ass library. Yeah. There's no attention on anything in the algorithm. Stan Twitter doing the heavy lifting right. or people memeing shit right. is like the most effective marketing most of these movies get, which is in particular a shame because this is also, I think, the first film not by Ryan Johnson to go through his production company. Hmm. That's kind of a bummer that it just goes through Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a good example. Like Glass Onion is just not a movie. I mean, it was never really poised to have quite the impact that the original had. But I feel like that original is going to endure and endure. We're going to get to like Thanksgiving this year. People will post things from that original movie. And just like the second one, it's going to be like, oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. The third one, whenever that comes up. So, oh, I saw that that one. I saw he's got a concept for the third one now, or at least like a setting. That dude always got some kind of concept. Cole, how about you? You've been able to catch up with anything outside of our horror watch list here? I mean, it's been a little bit of a slow week for me. I did get to attend a 35 millimeter showing of Todd Salonza's film Happiness. Oh, interesting. Which was a sold out audience and what a movie to watch with an audience. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just, oh my God. But yeah, a great depiction of how suburbanites are all crazy, depraved fucking psychos. (laughs) Just like an evil lurking under the surface. Literally evil. It just makes you want to like peel your skin off. Yeah. And as joked about, yes, I did go see Anatomy of a Fall again, even better on the second round. What an incredible movie. Can't wait to talk about it on here when you've seen it. It's been dry on my end for new releases. Keeping the powder dry for next Thursday. Killers of the Flower Moon. IMAX. Swifties be gone. Get me to the DCP room out of the IMAX laser. It's Leo time. This is our house of worship. Mm Mm-hmm. The following week, I'm doing a double feature at two different theaters, which are like 10 miles apart of Anatomy (laughs) of a Fall and David Fincher's The Killer, which we just mentioned. Everything's lining up. We're getting to that point where it's just like boom, 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 but haven't really had a whole lot thus far. did watch Curse of the Cat People, the secret cat people, which I really liked, honestly. It's a lot different. It's more of a fantasy drama than any kind of horror movie. But, you know, as a depiction of a child's need for imagination just to survive being in a nuclear unit, I thought it was pretty clever. Well done. When we were discussing that sequel 
cat people on our last episode. I happened to look it up. And then I think you looked it up before you watched it. So we both were like, this was directed by Robert Wise. Mm-hmm. Wow. This is a debut. Pretty cool. Co-director, but still. Robert Wise, obviously, we talked about him a little bit last week. And I have kind of a note to bring him up again. Because while I think in the wider consciousness, he's largely known for those two musicals, West Side Story and The Sound of Music, right? Smack in the middle of them. He did a little movie in 1960 called The Haunting, which we may have to discuss a little bit today. Yeah. I'll shout really quickly. I think it's my favorite thing I've watched this month. Madchen in Uniform, mm. which is an early German talkie. One of the very earliest films, certainly one of the earliest major films to depict a homosexual relationship, particularly a sapphic lesbian relationship. It is directed by Leontine Sagan. Uh, it's got artistic direction by some dude called Carl Froelich. I don't know what artistic direction means when she's been given the directorial tag, but it seems like they've given a lot of preeminence to, to Froelich, even though Sagan seems to be more of the engine of how the performances and dynamics in the movie come together. It's a mm-hmm. film from 1931, which depicts a boarding school, uh, an all-girls boarding school in particular, and the hardships of that, what it's like to come up under this like Prussian discipline and all these different things. But it's also very lively and fun and romantic, and it reminds me a lot of Jean Vigo's Zero for Conduct and also of Truffaut's The 400 Blows. So... Those are two, for me, fairly lofty comparisons. Just a really great early look at school life that feels very universal and relatable, while also being a lens into this very, very specific time pre-World War II in Germany, which obviously didn't last very long. So it's this little slice of history in there as well. So very exciting to get to finally catch up with that. And then the other movie I was going to mention is one that Cole brought up at the end of our last episode from 1954, and that is Them. I mean, I had to go rent. I can't remember the last time I had to like rent a movie (laughs) instead of getting it from the library or uh, finding it on streaming or whatever. Yeah, I have that on Blu-ray and still just have never looked into it. You got to pop it in. Yeah, Yeah, Cole gave a good pitch for it last week. It was produced and released in the same year as Godzilla, and it is a movie about gigantic kaiju-ass killer ants that are the spawn of the nuclear tests, the Trinity test at Los Alamos in New Mexico. And so it is an American film about the unintended lingering effects of nuclear testing and the atomic age and how that whole experience opened a door and we can't know what's on the other side of the door. What I kind of thought was interesting about it was how much aesthetically It seems to have rubbed off on Alien, and in particular on Aliens, where Mm. you've got all these different scenes where people are like going down into the ant hive with like flamethrowers and their masks, and it just looks exactly like the Cameron film, even more than the Scott one. That movie's got a great cast of characters, including uh, Baby Dr. Spock. Yes. Oh, shit. (laughs) Leonard. (laughs) The main scientist dude who's kind of like giving you all the Oppenheimer, you know, I become death stuff is the guy who plays Santa Claus in Miracle on 34th Street. Mm-hmm. I forget the actor's name, but it is that same fella who they're giving all that scientific, like the weight. Really interesting movie. I think it does get a little bit heavily into, oh, we got to talk to this guy. We got to talk to this guy. It almost has like a television early 
pre-Twilight zone kind of vibe, yeah. but for a movie that clearly didn't have, you know, quite the budget, what I think is interesting is, like, the special effects that they do have are minimized and they look good. And then the performances and the way that they treat these characters is actually, like, quite strong for a monster movie. Yeah, that's what puts it ahead of the pack of most of them for me. Mm-hmm. But it still has that, like, B-movie charm, but it's also thoughtful. And then it's got, you know, just memorable performances at the very least. That little girl freaking out <laughs> <of> rules. <laughs> but I thought that that was a great way to reflect back on our last episode and kind of recap. So on the previous episode, Cole led us and we talked through that silent period, the influence of movies like Caligari and Nosferatu, all the way through the explosion of Universal monster movies, the code, but then sort of resurgence via Val Luton, RKO, of movies throughout the 40s where we focus on cat people. In the 50s, I think what you really see, what we talked about a lot, is the marriage of horror and science fiction, which really culminates very heavily at the end of the decade with the Twilight Zone there in 1959 Mm -hmm. with its debut. But all through that decade, movie titles that we're familiar with, such as The Fly or The Thing from Another World, because of their remakes, were really getting into these technological themes after the war that I think punch up and start to help define what horror movies are going to be for the remainder of the 20th century. I've already prefaced this. I think Wise the Haunting feels like a perfect inflection point of the formalism of the past studio era and your curse of the cat people and the way that that film is made, but the rich psychological nature of the Shirley Jackson novel that it's based on being a pivot from these technological and studio movies into movies that are more interested in the inner workings of the human mind, where fear is exaggerated and distorted by how a person feels or what they think. And I think that that's really, really well signified by both The Haunting and then overseas with a movie in 1961, The Innocence, Mm -hmm. which is like fucking freaky. (laughs) Beneath the weeping willow. The fucking scene (laughs) with the across the the body of water and yeah, just like there's like this ominous fucking drone and it just really gets under my skin. That's an adaptation of Henry James' The Turn of the Screw, which was obviously a really big inspiration on Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, Mm -hmm. the novel from 59 that The Haunting is based off of. So I think those two movies really have a lot of connection to each other and represent a pivot point where everything is still very much in the old style, but the subject matter is shifting. It's Mm -hmm. getting a little bit deeper under the skin, I think. And then I think that there's one other movie before we mention the Brit who came to Hollywood with a Brit who just made movies in Britain the entire time. Powell, Michael Powell of the famous Archers duo and Keeping Tom in 1960 in the UK, a movie so shocking that it basically ended that guy's career. Yep, more or less. And I think that those three movies start to kind of get us into the mood for what falls right out of the sky in 1961. He had to make it with a TV crew because nobody wanted to touch it. But yeah, you have all these films building up to the more psychological state of things, you know, The Innocence and The Haunting, which I like to think of as sister films. In particular, both were absolute masterpieces, right? <laughs> Look, I'm literally reading the fucking Jackson novel <laughs> right now. It's a little tough for me, I think. <laughs> and, and this is an important point for me to make, I think, especially in the context of Psycho and some of these other 60s films, is that what Hitchcock is able to do in his movie 
And I think in 65, a movie Skipping Ahead by Roman Polanski from the UK, Repulsion is able to really do, is get you fucking right up inside the mind of these characters in a way that I don't really think that Wise was quite ready for on The Haunting. And you need it for that particular Jackson novel because everything is in Eleanor's perspective. Mm -hmm. And so it's like her unreliability. You can't tell if she's being scared by the haunting of the house or if her anxiety is the very thing that is haunting the house. And that duality is like right at the core of what that book is. And I think that it's something that Psycho is like fucking A++++ at just getting right there with material that's also a little bit more simple. That's really the magic of Psycho is that it's just... It's just elemental. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've always read The Haunting as relatively straightforward and that the house is just preying on her and feeding on her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, adapting something from a novel to a film where you can't really stay with someone the entire time. It has its issues. But when it's a scene of her and Theo in bed and yeah. there's just that pounding outside the door and they have no idea what it is, just. <sighs> I really think that's where the movies of the 60s start to kick in. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of the decade, we've got all sorts of things that are just like complete, total, utter masterpieces because of their ability to do this. So I think it was something that kind of got picked up along the way and improved along the way in this decade Mm -hmm. and did so in a real big hurry. But that's right. The science fiction horror of the 1950s was slowly starting to peter out a little bit. And then 1960, the late, great as a director not as a human being mr alfred hitchcock just blasted the doors open with psycho still the greatest trailer of all time yep i think it's kind of the greatest title sequence of all time still too yeah with those bernard herman scores and just like every it looks like a fucking paper shredder just like it's so good yeah like i mean it's not saying anything to anybody but psycho is just one of those movies where like for the first especially like 50 minutes up until the point it's just flawless it is a machine of how a movie can operate from image to image to image and build tension out of fucking nothing but her looking in the rearview mirror and seeing the sunglasses of that cop following her around and you're just like god damn this is a master (laughs) it is maybe the first movie that comes to mind when faced with the question of what movie would you want wiped from your memory to see again for the first time. It's an interesting thought. Do you remember seeing it for the first time? Yeah, it was actually because we had a, a pretty sick English teacher my freshman year. Um, and that was the first time I saw it in full. We also watched The Sixth Sense that year. And that's really like a study in movies where I knew the entire plots of before I had seen them. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So that's really what I mean. What does Psycho look like to someone who doesn't know almost every beat of it? Who thinks that Marion Crane is its main character? Yeah, and I, I've exactly. never lived in that timeline. I yearn for that. I had seen like parodies of it and stuff, you know, like Rolling right. Tunes back in action. But <laughs> yeah, Joe Dante, baby. Yep. The first time I saw Psycho, I was 10, I think. And even though I knew, you know, like the big twists and everything about it, it speaks to the power of the movie. I remember because I think it was actually I watched it on Thanksgiving. And mm. the day after when I went to go take a shower, I took the folding chair that we had in there for uh, towels. Put it up under the door. And I put it up under the door. <laughs> like, nah, I'm done playing. It scared me that much. 
I think the first parody that I can remember is from National Lampoon's Vacation, where he goes mm-hmm. at her with the banana. Yeah. I'm sure that I saw some others. Like, there's multiple Simpsons gags of that scene. Like, just that moment is so referenced. I probably saw it on a hundred fucking DVD trailers. I think the first time I saw it, it was I, I was a little bit older, actually. This was not a movie that I saw early. At least it's not a movie that I remember seeing early. I think I was a teenager, at least. And I remember being like, wow, this spends so much time with the eventual victim. That's really weird. But I think the probably like Scream was the first place that I ever encountered this, where I thought Mm -hmm. Drew Barrymore was the main character of the movie. And then, oops, uh uh-oh. So I had seen the magic trick done before, but the dedication to the trick here, the dedication to laying out the entire room before pulling the rug up from under you is like, yeah insane and the brilliance to spend so much time with marianne is that the film basically kills you off as well as her because you're so attached to her and suddenly you're without a perspective you're just floating about like a spirit haunting the motel so much of like you know the tension scenes place you with norman as the main character at that point because you're like okay how's he gonna juke this guy how's he gonna get out of our gas little fucking dragnet that he's trying to pull on him here how is he gonna trick the sister even though you've just spent all this time with this other lady and in theory you're probably on her side as like you know she's gone through the whole thing with the money and she chooses the moral path and fucking gets iced but you immediately it's like instant because of the way that he makes the movie because of the way that he can set up a scene he can put you inside the perspective of any character good or evil just by knowing what the elements the bomb under the table and it's like the scene with Arbogast in the guest book. And you're like, oh, uh, fuck, because he had her sign mm-hmm. the thing. And you're like, you're feeling so much dread on behalf of this murderer. <laughs> because you think like, oh, no, he's not going to get away with the murder. It's sort of the beautiful thing about the bomb under the table is it suddenly casts your allegiances to the parties into doubt of like, you know, in that split second of like, wait, uh, who is I actually rooting for here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just rooting against cops i'm rooting against the cop that's chasing yeah. her i'm rooting against the detective that's investigating in my youth yes now i cannot bring myself to root against juror number one yeah uh so <laughs> cole and i actually did if you guys are interested in more psycho talk cole and i actually did an episode on the gus van sant remake of this film which is much maligned but quite an interesting experiment i thought we had a great conversation about it and i just wanted to shout it out because william h macy plays arbogast in that movie and rocks yeah i should watch that movie and i i really don't want to <laughs> it's it's a weird I, little litmus I test defend it yeah it's weird <laughs> it's goofy i think it's an amazing experiment and the yeah. fact that he just got to burn so much money from universal is just awesome this is one of those things where i've read so many takes on it that like i mean yes some of them are unfair and some of the ones defending it are deeply stupid but i've read so many takes and perspectives both defending it and sort of against it that are compelling in themselves that it's like what are what it's like to have an opinion on this yeah you know Uh, i think i think in a way the gus van sant movie exists in this vortex of what you were saying in the beginning what if you could wipe this movie from your memory like the van sant movie is about how you can't <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like it's it's a movie about yeah. how you know the entire fucking shot sequence of psycho 
from memory. I don't have to rewatch it. It's a perfectly perfunctory thing. I can just tell you, like, okay, yeah, it starts off. We're in Phoenix. We're going over the cityscape. There's a little title card. Then we go into the office. The banker comes to the office. There's no air conditioning where the secretaries are. Like, da 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 It's just, it's embedded in there. Right. Like, I could just close my eyes and the movie could just start playing at my head. You're like, okay, yeah, now we're in the hotel. Now he's getting the sandwiches. The sandwiches are just a pile of bread on a plate. Uh, but I think <laughs> that's, so, that's so true. <laughs> Why is it like that? Clearly, his mother didn't teach him how to cook. It's just mayonnaise sandwiches. What's going on here, bro? I'm just completely obsessed with the low angle shot of him and the owl. Oh, and then there's yeah. sort of one where he's with Arbogast leaning over the guest book and he like goes into the camera and he's just all nose and chin and it just looks like a big old bird beak. <laughs> It's so good. It's the much freakier Hitchcock birds movie. Yeah, well, you although know. that other one did kind of traumatize me when I was eight, though. So. Yeah, there's just nothing in a movie that can be scarier than an actual bird flying <laughs> at you. <laughs> but yeah, Psycho changed not horror. It changed the world. First of all, I think we would probably agree it is like the first blow to the Hayes Code that landed and ultimately led to its death in 1968. There were some blows before, like Anatomy of a Murder, Blue Lagoon, some like it hot, especially. Mm. But those were like punches that built it up. This was the first like stab to the heart of the code. Yeah, we're like, we're pushing it down. Getting rid of this shit. Yeah. Oh, God. That shot on the staircase. Dude, so good. (laughs) Oh, fallen. A little goofy, but hey, it works. Yeah, so I think that the first impact is that everywhere kind of starts getting into that psychological stuff. I mentioned Repulsion already, which I think is an important stepping stone. Obviously, one of the two movies in 68, along with Night of the Living Dead, would be Rosemary's Baby. I mean, I feel like Repulsion is, in its own way, it took a longer time for it to establish this, but it is just as influential as Psycho when you consider its influence Mm -hmm. on like David Lynch or um, even like the Coen brothers, right? Like on like Barton Fink and stuff like that. Spencer from just a couple years ago is like heavy fucking repulsion. Yes, literally the, the shine. Yes. Yeah. So like there's this kind of psychological underpinning of like, you know, on one hand, the Hitchcock, it's the formalism bomb under the table, putting you under the perspective. And then like Polanski's just like a little nightmare demon who just like pokes you and he's like, hey, you want to see something fucked? You want to see something really, really fucked? Cuts up some rotted bunny <laughs> oh with flies God, all around that shit. And, and unfortunately, I did want to see something fucked. It I, is what Repulsion happened. is a movie I do wish I had seen as a teenager, because I think I would love it even more if that's possible. I only got to it like a year and a half ago now, I think. It is one of those movies where I was watching it and I was like, God damn, that would have hit like a truck at like 17. That's when I saw it and it like rocked my world. Yeah, there's just certain moments. Guy coming up from under the blankets or the shadows underneath the door. And it's like, ah, the hands I, coming out of the wall. I love how much that movie, it establishes her basic psychosis so that everything that happens is kind of a distortion within her mind and outside her mind. And it's combining her dark fantasies with memories and just it all just mixes together in this big, nasty psychological cocktail. And I think Rosemary's Baby just kind of elevates that even higher into the artistic sphere. Really, I mean, to me, that's one of the greatest films ever made. And then just right alongside it, George A. Romero's like, fuck him up. Yeah, (laughs) very different ways the Hayes Code ended. Within the horror sphere, anyway. I mean, there are a number of films that contributed to this that, as we've stated, 
uh, had nothing to do with horror, really, especially at this time. The two that like everyone associates with The End of the Code are The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. And again, two very different films. And I think that's indicative of why The Code was never built to last. So many people have so much more lurid fascinations than The Code was willing to allow for. Mm -hmm. And particularly uh, deeply transgressive films like rosemary's baby and night of the living dead being as monstrous as they were mm -hmm. both critically and in the box office also be unwise to ignore the fact that just during the 60s things were so turbulent and chaotic you know you had politicians getting their heads blown off left and right you had vietnam you had the civil rights movement you had all this chaos that upended the baby boomers come of age and like the whole 1950s white pick offense bullshit just gets blasted out the face of the earth like a generational reform of like we are tired of being coddled by forces outside of our control and it's starting to be reflected in our art as it mm -hmm. always is yeah i mentioned rosemary's baby because for me that is probably like about as high of an artistic achievement as you can have in filmmaking or horror or anything and I think that it's reflected probably even more in the cultural consciousness just a few years later, where five years after the code ends, we've got a Best Picture nominee with a little girl stabbing herself in the crotch with a crucifix, blood coming out, all kinds of obscenity. And I'm talking about William Friedkin's The Exorcist, mm -hmm. which I think is like the inarguable grand coming out of horror into the main... And, and what I want to say is not horror, because horror has always been here, right? That's what we're talking about is how horror has always been here. But it's like horror at the highest level while not pulling any punches, while being R-rated, obscene, violent, vomit, you blood. Know, working backwards from an X rating, you know, to get it yeah, in Basically, the yeah. But also still being based off of a well-liked novel and yep. being presented more as a prestige vehicle than, you know, some schlocky horror movie. Being directed by the guy who had won Best Picture two years ago. Right. And starring Ellen Burstyn and Max von Sydow. So you got like these people of note, of acclaim, working with an acclaimed material, and acclaimed director, coming out during the holiday season, the day after Christmas. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. December 26, 1973. Imagine you're Catholic. You get out of Midnight Mass. The first thing you do is you go see the exorcist. <laughs> go right back into the church. And it's so funny because I find, you know, as a person of faith myself, I find few movies as affirming in the nature of good as that movie. To me, that's like, I think maybe if Rosemary's Baby had gotten to me before, I would feel the way that Zach feels about it that I do about The Exorcist. And instead, it's sort of mm -hmm. the way it is reversed. That was a movie that I had grown up being absolutely terrified of. And when mm -hmm. I did finally watch it as sort of a life changing moment, really, like it just brought in so many perspectives I had about art and grappling with faith and how to question it. And still, you know, questioning it doesn't mean denying it. And I find it to be such a rapturously brilliant film in a variety of ways, and I think most strongly in its horror filmmaking. It is definitely like this prestige drama with a, a heavy weight on its chest, for sure, but mostly just like a psychological thriller of trying to find out what is wrong with this girl mm -hmm. until it really puts its foot on the gas and creates in the double to triple digits of most 
resounding and successful and viscerally powerful images, not just in horror, but in cinema. You know, I think of the shot of Reagan with her back arched, the statues Uh, behind her and those shafts of light. I mean, that crosses my mind every time, not to mention that it has maybe the greatest poster ever that they didn't go with on the 4k <laughs> fucking moron same deal with rosemary's baby that's put out a 4k and it looks ugly as shit even yeah, though the poster it, is just mia farrow mm-hmm. with the fucking it's like, again one of the most iconic images of all time and they're just like no nah, we'll do something else instead of this beautiful faded smoky green we'll just use like a green jpeg it'll be one flat nasty color it's like all right that's fine it looks like it's shit true. but it's fine <laughs> Some people should go to jail for certain things. They should, including the production of Actus Believer. <laughs> or the Exorcist uh, yeah. to the Heretic, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> you know, for me, The Exorcist was a movie that I saw young. I think I just was like, the, the effects are cheesy. The way that, you know, like a nine-year-old might say some shit like that when their brain has been ruined by Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> it's like, yes, the effects are cheesy. There's literal cheese in that soup. That you just I eventually read that novel i've read both rosemary's baby by ira levin and the exorcist by william peter blatty the blatty novel is much more like unwieldy and all over the place as you can kind of i think tell by the movie where it's like you've got the mom and she's dealing with this and you got karis he's dealing with this and then it's like here comes fucking Marin at the end that you know i think with rosemary's baby what i've always really loved is how much everything is about her it's about what it means to be lied to to live in an untrustworthy world the cost of living in the modern world, selling your fucking soul for your job, shit like that. Mm -hmm. There's just something really raw and primal. The Exorcist, I've always seen it. And to this day, I still see it more as a drama than as a horror movie. And I don't exactly know if what I mean by that is like the drama works more for me than the horror. Or if I literally just kind of think like when I watch it, that's just sort of what I think it's doing more. Yeah, I mean, like mathematically, that's mostly what the movie is if you want to like break it down into percentage. Yeah, and it's got a nice slow pace to the, it's like a two hour movie and it's just very steady. It's a movie that I've always liked, if not outright loved, maybe because I did come to it a little bit later and I'm not a particularly religious person myself, although I do love like supernatural and religious horror. I mean, like I love Rosemary's Baby, like that is an incredible movie. I would sell my soul to live in that apartment. (laughs) That gets very away from the religion, and it's more about like you know the satanic panic of that era. It's almost uh-huh. more Manson coded than anything. Right. Although it's right. once upon a time yeah. Hollywood will remind you one happened before the other, but it's still right. It's about how you can't trust your husband, you can't trust your neighbors, you can't trust your doctor, you can't trust anybody. Every fucking Polanski movie, Repulsion, The Tenant, you cannot trust your neighbors. That's what his whole filmography mm-hmm. is about, and then he proved it with his life <laughs> yeah uh, he's gonna burn in hell but you know that's for another time that's true you know there are two bits of the exorcist in terms of the horror that do get me at least that i think are really really cool the first one is ellen burston in the attic with the candle mm, and it just goes, <laughs> oh it's good it's her reaction that makes it so good because she freaks she's like yeah like a normal person would Mm -hmm. like it's it's one of those moments where it feels like you're watching somebody do this in a film for the first time because she sells that so flawlessly it's like oh this is where the trite sequence of somebody wandering in a dark area with the candle experiencing some sort of supernatural thing was really perfected i mean obviously the plethora of haunted house films that came before this are all influential on it burston herself and jason What's his name? I just had this up the other day. 
dude looks like Rocky. He does. <laughs> I think there's like a character that tells him you boxing. look like a boxer. <laughs> boxing and everything. He boxes in that film. It's Jason Miller. Yeah. Jason Miller. The two of them are so instrumental in how effective that movie is. I mean, even as much as Friedkin is or, you know, Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. It's interesting. I look at Lee J. Cobb here in the cast list and I'm like, that is just George C. Scott, even in my mind. Like <laughs> The Exorcist 3, uh, yeah. which for the record is like my second or third favorite horror film of all time. And I prefer it even to the first. So effective at characterizing Kinderman that I've overwritten Mr. Cobb, God rest his soul, <laughs> with George C. Scott. And it doesn't help that they both played, I think it's juror number three in different versions of 12 Angry Men, one of which one was Freakins. One oh, of which directed by yeah, William Freakins. Right. It's kind of like that psycho remake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other sequence that I think is probably among Freakins' best, like up there with the car chases and To Live and Die in LA and French Connection is the dream sequence, the Karis dream sequence, where he sees his mother coming out of the subway and you get the little flash of Pazuzu and everything. Mm-hmm. That shit's freaky. Yeah. And it's not just freaky, it's like upsetting. Yeah. So good at like effectively replicating a nightmare of like, there's so much normal shit in this. And then there's one thing of like, why mm-hmm. is my mother walking out of the subway right now? That violent element that shatters your reality. It's like the lenses are probably a little bit different there. He's shooting everything from like farther away. And he's got this like the focal length is like right on top of her. But you just see like a lot of street and people kind of like blurred out. It's just like really clinical stuff. And it's the type of stuff where you can understand like why this is his most Mm -hmm. celebrated film. Again, for the impact that it had culturally, I think it's forever going to be like his movie. You know, Mm -hmm, in the same way that The Shining is for Kubrick, although there's many other Mm -hmm. competitors. But, you know, you ask anybody off the street what they say, if they even know who these directors are. Even beyond that, if they don't know the names, if you ask somebody, you know, they know the movies. What do you think of when you see pea soup on the menu? You're thinking the exorcist, you know, spinning the head around, vomiting, crab walking down the stairs, which although wasn't in in the original. It was not in the original, no. Just the power of Christ compels you. Yeah. I mean, it's what you say during an exorcism, yeah. apparently. Yeah, it had <laughs> such a cultural impact that if you adjust for inflation, it is still the ninth highest grossing film of all time. Yeah, Which, again, is such crazy. a testament to how we are all such lurid little creatures, you know? Yeah. Everyone, undeniably, has that part of them. I was bringing this up at the beginning. Like, this is a movie where she sexually violates herself with a crucifix. That's what I think of half the time. That's the first thing, at least half the time, if not more, that I think of when I see a crucifix. It's repugnant. Yeah. And then the second, this is kind of a funny line to me, but it's happening in such a fraught moment where she's like, your mother sucks cocks in hell, Karis. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> this is such an obscene film yeah. to be so successful that it's a Best Picture nominee. By the 2010s, that doesn't really matter. Django Unchained, right? Like winning screenplay. It doesn't matter how vulgar things are. But in 73, you don't get to a Django screenplay nomination. You don't get to Tarantino being a filmmaker, I would argue, without something like The Exorcist. Insane that they had Cries and Whispers and The Exorcist in the same Best Picture lineup. Jesus. <laughs> Fucking Cries misery. And Whispers is like exactly as upsetting as being possessed by the devil <laughs> yep just about just about thanks ingmar one thing that really fascinates me about the success of rosemary's baby and the success of the exorcist is that it's a turn back towards the supernatural because you've had yes. all the science fiction horror in the 50s petering out a little bit in the 60s because it's just like 
we have run into things that science cannot explain. And that's even scarier than science itself. And it's really critical to note, it's about where science falls short. It's not that science doesn't exist. It's that for all of our science, there are still things we cannot do and there are questions that we cannot answer. And I think that's true, like even though Rosemary's Baby isn't really like about that, it's still there in the unreliability of doctors. It's in there in the unreliability of her psychiatrist who Mm -hmm. are working against her the entire time. And then in The Exorcist, I would argue that's the main fucking theme. The main shot of this movie that I think of is Burstyn sitting in that room full of doctors. It's Silence of the Lambs elevator shot, basically. Mm -hmm. It's a room full of men in white coats staring at one woman in the center who is utterly helpless as much of a procedural as it is a drama for so much of it i think that comes from blatty and you can see that with his movie with the third one Mm. comes from freaking too absolutely previous film french connection and all there's also the omen which i think is a significant little thing oh yeah even though the omen's kind of like the trashier younger sibling of these two it's huge yeah i've still never seen it it even got oscar attention too it won jerry goldsmith his only oscar for best original score that score goes way too fucking hard for that movie (laughs) (laughs) who's the is it peck gregory peck is the lead yeah yeah i just rewatched that like the other day gregory peck in a horror movie that's wild my dad was born 71 so like the omen was one of the first scary movies he ever saw like freaked him the fuck out when he's looking (laughs) this is kind of one of those (laughs) movies in our house like it had a rep i think at the same time there's almost the pivot back into the sci-fi and the technology with like invasion of the body snatchers there at the end of the decade yeah i think is like the paranoia of the 70s and that's a remake it's one of the first remakes that gets you into that 80s Mm -hmm. era where the remakes become really big and sequels become really big and franchises become really big and at the center of that franchise whirlwind is the other offshoot of psycho so if one of them is the movie is getting more psychological and that leads to these literary adaptations that remind us of The Haunting. The other side of it can be summed up by some fellas like Dario Argento, Brian De Palma, whose careers took off with Sisters, The Bird of the Crystal Plumage, and the cutty-cutty, stabby-stabbier side of Psycho, which birthed the slasher as we know it. And I think it's a little bit tough to really say exactly like what is the first slasher, Because there's certain stuff like Bay of Blood in the early 70s, or even like The Girl Who Knew Too Much back in 63 or 64 Mm -hmm. has these like early shallow qualities to it. I'm curious kind of like what you guys think. I always sort of put it in the seven. It's the 74 duo of Black Christmas, Texas Chainsaw. Those two feel so potent, but they're a little early. Black Christmas is the one I think of a lot. It's, I think of Black Christmas because I feel like that's the first time it comes fully formed, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, I think Psycho is the first one, but it's like, it's so proto. Sure. Yeah. Difficult to classify. And then I think Halloween kind of crystallizes the concept a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. The one that really kicked it into overdrive, although I hate to say it, it's right at the 13th. Mm. That's the one that really kicks off the domination. That's the one that makes it like a commodity. Yeah. yeah. The slasher icon where mm-hmm. Voorhees and Michael Myers and Leatherface and eventually Freddy Krueger a little bit later in the 80s. Mm-hmm. It's like these icons, these like mascots. Comic book for sure, right? at that point. And all unafraid to just drown yourself in gore. I mean, the thing about Friday the 13th is that Sean Cunningham hired Tom Savini for it, visual yeah. maker artist the guy that took Mm -hmm. us from 68 to 78 with dawn of the dead 
and all yeah. the fucking yeah. crazy colorful goop in the mall. But in terms of these slasher movies, when we were coming into this episode, we talked a little bit about, do we want to do this on Carpenter's Halloween or do we want to do it on Hooper's Texas Chainsaw? I'm curious between those two. For me, like that's kind of like neck and neck, pretty close to the top two slasher movies for me. Maybe Halloween goes a little lower. I've always been a little cooler on that one. I don't have a great history with it, although it's something that I've come to really love and appreciate over the years. But I'm curious how you guys kind of feel about those two, or maybe just Carpenter's, since we decided to go with Chainsaw as the main focus. Like, how does Halloween sit with you all these years on? I mean, it is maybe the only movie that, without fail, I will watch seasonally. Mm. I haven't done it yet this year, which is weird, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, there's half the month left. Yeah, right. It is a movie set on the day, so I totally get wanting to yeah. kind of have it closer mm-hmm. to the holiday itself. Yeah. I watched it on Friday the 13th this year, which I thought was like, <laughs> yeah, it was a nice little, eh, to <laughs> this somehow worse franchise than Halloween. It's been one that's a little closer to me than uh, Texas Chainsaw. Mostly because I, 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 there is nothing about Texas Chainsaw that makes me want to go. Let's let this close to my. Uh, <laughs> you gonna get it to my mind. There's nothing in that movie that makes me go. Yeah, I want to throw this on every single October. Uh, I can't relate, but we'll get into. Yeah. That. we'll get into that. <laughs> but Halloween is just like this elemental, perfect little gem. And it reminds me of like Star Wars sure. from yeah. the year prior. Absolutely, they captured something entirely ephemeral in its simplicity and its sublime flawlessness in its way. Like Halloween is a movie I could tell you shot Mm. for shot of way better than like Psycho. That's interesting. It's definitely a movie that is that precisely directed and it speaks to who Carpenter is as a filmmaker and what his interests are. It's his third movie ever after Assault on Precinct 13, which is arguably like even leaner and more elemental in a way, because it's just like some people in a building getting attacked and trying to survive. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, that opening, iconic, we open up from the POV, we don't quite know it yet, of child Michael Myers going around the house and eventually up to his sister's room, puts on the clown mask, brandishes the knife. But it's got these other great POV moments. Like, for instance, when Lori is going across the street to Lisa's house to figure out what the fuck is going on with all her friends... You go POV with Lori and it kind of like is cutting back to her walking across the street. There's just so many little amazing directorial tricks for young John Carpenter here. A man who is already shit all over Steven Spielberg and Robert Altman at this point. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You know, when you make like two of the absolute greatest horror movies of all time, you're allowed to brag a little bit. The thing is that he hadn't made either of them yet when he said it. It was bold to say it in the run-up to Halloween. He was just that confident. But, you know, once once you make the thing, it's like, uh, yeah. all right, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's maybe the one inhibitor for me with Carpenter is sort of like, to me, like, that is like a pinnacle, the thing of, like, practical effects of everything that he's about as a filmmaker. I think when I revisit this one, I watched this this year and I watched it last year. I think I might have watched this one like three years in a row right now. So I've got a lot of Halloween like kind of in my memory bank. It's a movie that moves very steadily. Mm-hmm. It's very like paced mm-hmm. out for a 90 minute movie. It's not like whip bang crash holy fuck pace. It's just very very slow and steady. But what's really incredible about that is if you can kind of get onto that wavelength, which most people obviously can because it's a very successful popular movie. You get rewarded with that tension 
in the third act where there's the moment of her trying to get in the house. Tommy, unlock the door while Michael is slowly walking across the street and that slow pace right there where you're like, yeah, Tommy's going to take himself a good few seconds to get down that staircase, unlock the door and let her in while this dude is just (laughs) ambling across the street. Two Rube Goldberg things are going off at the same time and you're sort of doing the mental Mm -hmm. calculation of who's going to end up in the same spot at which time. Yeah, she's not going to make it. (laughs) It's also perfectly conveyed and blocked. And whatever the current feelings are on her aside, she is incredible. Yeah. Miss Curtis, you mean? Yes. You know, the daughter of Janet Mm -hmm. Lee. That's right. Marion Crane herself. But like flipping the script on. And Tony Curtis. Yep. Point back to some like it hot from earlier. Real Hollywood royalty over there. It's all connected. She's also in The Fog, which was the next movie that Carpenter did, also co-written by Deborah Hill. A movie that I really love. And I think it illuminates where I've always sat with Halloween. And I think I'm here with Texas Chainsaw, too. And there's a good relationship between the two of them. It's just like, these are not textual movies in the least. Which is not to say that there are not themes or that you cannot analyze them because you can, particularly when you go off of, you know, lines like Loomis, another psycho reference, that name, Sam Loomis, mm-hmm. when he's saying things like, if you tell people that Michael's loose, they'll be seeing him in every house. They'll imagine that he's in every window. And it's this idea of like the evil that's like creeping into suburbia, but is also like born mm-hmm. there. So it's the evil under the surface, which just brings everything home. It's not in the woods, it's not in space, it's not in Italy, it's in Glendale. (laughs) Masquerading. Yeah, it's right there in Haddonfield, California. (laughs) I think what gets me with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which might be even less textual than Halloween, because I I don't even really think there's any sort of shit like, oh, the creeping evil of the suburbs. It's like, nah, this is some murderous-ass hillbillies (laughs) and nothing else. But it is the way that everything is so sensual so immediate, so ready to reach out of the screen and fucking mob you and push your head into the wall. There's really so very few movies in the world, anything like Texas Chainsaw because of the conditions under which it was made, because of how it was made. And to me, it just stands the test of time. I probably love it just a little bit more every time I see it. Mm -hmm. And for me, this is pretty much an annual watch. Because I just think it's so fucking exciting. I view both of these movies as almost like fairy tales in a sense, you know, Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like the original, unedited Grimm Brothers version of those stories. It is just a nasty, nasty, nasty movie about how we need to get rid of Texas as quickly as possible. Damn right. There's no one safe here. Fucking Bugs Bunny with the song. <laughs> It's also a movie about how you just should not go into people's homes in Texas ever. <laughs> you shouldn't go into people's homes, period. That's true, but, but if you're going to do it anywhere, yeah, don't fucking do it here. It's interesting the ways that you talk about it being less textual, because I certainly don't think anybody in the making of it thought about this in this way. But that movie is about Vietnam to me. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the effects of youth in that time frame how people responded to that sort of in-your-face terror on a worldwide scale condensed into this really lean deeply violent freak show yeah i mean yeah and i don't even say violent because like of the slasher movies it's among the least gory certainly yeah probably the most blood that you get in the movie 
is in the beginning in the van when he cuts open Franklin's arm with that razor. It's either that or when Franklin himself gets chainsawed and there's some <laughs> like splatter. Oh my god! Um, and yet it feels so perverse. It feels so filthy compared to these other ones. The film itself, particularly, yes. I mean, it's in the form. It's the celluloid. One of the greatest edits ever. Ever is the film itself is violent. To me, where the violence of this movie takes root is in the body. It opens up and we have these camera flashes and that horrible fucking sound. And it's on these yeah. rotted corpses and the fucking teeth and the fingernails and the hair. And then we see the big scarecrow version of it. And then in that scene where we go into the van and we're with these kids and they pick up the hitchhiker, the hitchhiker's got all these like crazy marks on his face that are like discolored or burned or scarred or whatever. And then Franklin's got these marks up and down his arms from his old busted ass 1960s wheelchair that he's got where it's just rubbed his arms raw and there's so many quiet little details like that that just make you think about the sensitivity of the body how it's skin and flesh and organs and bones so that by the time you see somebody get put up on a meat hook you're thinking about how many layers of flesh it's just gone up into yeah it feels like her costume was so deliberate in that sense of like there is no armor there no. she is just completely bareback pop and George, again one of the greatest shots of all time of her getting up from the porch swing and My walking God. towards the house and it's like who let this man cook <laughs> this movie was made for like i've seen different numbers for it the highest one that I've seen is $160,000. So we'll just stick with that because that's low yeah. enough. The funding, I believe, came from the proceeds of the film Deep Throat. Deep Throat is a famous pornography film, which the guy that basically blew the whistle on Richard Nixon is named after. So <laughs> there's sort of a there's sort of like a web of 70s culture yeah. that sort of breeds into this movie's weird mythic existence to me. So, Cole, you watched a movie that we're probably going to talk about next week because I think it's a seminal movie of the millennium yeah. called The Blair Witch Project. Yep. And to me, this movie, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is like the ultimate version of that type of film. It starts off and it's like, this really fucking happened. And there's this kind of sense of amateur acting and everything looks and feels like a snuff film. Like you're just watching teenagers get fucking mm -hmm. murdered. And yet it's still so stylized and like genuinely boundary shattering within formal filmmaking. And that's the brilliance of it, I think. You know, I mean, this is occurring to me on like the sixth or seventh lifetime watch where I'm like, no, that's the textbook of like how every genuinely subversive or at least every film that was trying to be subversive that came after this. This is what they're all cribbing from, really. These camera angles with the subject matter with this full-throated commitment to like, we don't really need characterization when the landscape and the, the events are elemental enough to sort of speak for everyone that is on screen. We get about as much characterization for the victims as we do for Leatherface and his little gaggle. The clan probably gets more. That yeah, family, yeah. They just get quite a bit of personality. And, you know, behaviorally, and just like the, their idiosyncrasies, Franklin and the family, not really all that different. <laughs> yeah. Some weird dudes. South is a weird place. I think they would all get along if they just had a beer instead of dismemberment. I think about that opening armadillo a lot, because that is like just one of the first things you'll see when you come to Texas is some fucking dead armadillo on the road. <laughs> and it's yeah. just like roadkill. 
one of the quick aesthetic touches of this movie that also really contributes to its sense of like harm almost like the fact that this feels more real than most horror movies is the use of sunlight in halloween actually there's a fucking phenomenal scene it's actually like three scenes parted out first one's got the blue oyster cult annie and lawyer smoking the J. then they run into her dad and then they're driving on they're talking about ben schramer and the prom dance it's just like teenager shit. Yeah. And the sun comes in through the car window and it's just this fucking gorgeous solar flare on the celluloid. Texas Chainsaw has like 30 of those because it's just all the time out in the sunlight. And it has this amber sun-soaked quality. It makes it look like you were out there filming in the daylight mm-hmm. with your own personal camera because of how tinted and rust-colored it gets. But then at the same time, by setting the bulk of this movie in daylight... I think it's such a fucking freaky nightmarish choice that takes you so far away from 20s, 30s, Nosferatu, Expressionism. It's all shadows, nighttime, creepy castles, and spider webs. And it's like, nah, we're in the middle of the day. It's three in the afternoon, and this is just a neighborhood. This is just a place. It's a creek. It's the woods. It's that guy's front yard. It's a porch swing. And people are getting fucking carved up out here. And I think that that really contributes to just what a unnerving experience it becomes. Because if you take Halloween, that's a movie that very gradually shifts you. It starts on the first night, it goes to Halloween, and it takes you all the way from school in the morning to the evening to the nighttime. And that's when the violence really kicks in. Texas Chainsaw's like, we're not waiting. <laughs> we're just going, baby. The fourth real frame of the movie that isn't a title card is that meat scarecrow with the yeah. sun behind it. Uh, it's like, yeah, it's just it's out just there. Nasty. It truly just looks like the movie would infect you. Yeah. Like if you had a 35 millimeter copy of it, the projector technician has to wear gloves. <laughs> it's fucking grimy. Cannot say. And this goes for Carpenter too. I can't believe we managed to talk about Halloween and not mention the score. Oh or the God. Theme. Yeah. It, it just feels da-da, so obvious. Da-da, da-da, you know? Da-da, yep. You know what I love about Halloween that I was thinking about when I watched it actually is that, you know, we all, you know, great, fucking amazing. The actual like sting, amazing. But the one that really got me, harkens right back to that Altman Spielberg thing, because in that video, he's like, love Jaws. And it's like, yeah, it shows, especially for the fucking music, because it's just Ding, 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 ding. And it's like, oh, that's so fucking freaky, this dead-eyed shark coming through the neighborhood. Eh. But with Chainsaw, just like everything else in Chainsaw compared to Halloween, Halloween is like perfectly structured, organized. Everything is like a gem. This is like a nightmare experiment because the music in this is fucking wildly it's freaky. And the sound mix, too. I read somewhere that it was a deliberate choice to not use any instruments in the <laughs> score. And it was like, it shows. We know. We could tell. Because this is like, dog, this is just unpleasant. There's a couple of films from the same year, 2007, which are both uh, five-star movies for me, which I think borrow from this. One of them would be No Country for Old Men Mm -hmm. by Joel and Ethan Cohen, which borrows that all of the score is like wind, bugs, there's not really any music. And the cattle gun, the pneumatic cattle gun that Shigur uses, 
has a direct fucking reference to this movie when it's Franklin talking about how it actually sends the rod into the brain. Tommy Lee Jones basically gives that same speech verbatim. So don't go to Texas. That's yeah. still the lesson. <laughs> yeah. Off limits. The other 2007 movie, just for one scene, it's David Fincher's Zodiac, the daylight murder scene mm-hmm. where you've got the synthy bug score. And it's just like probably the most stomach churning murder scene in a movie to me yeah so this is really the blueprint on how to do that shit it's so much longer than anything in texas chainsaw i mean those are all oh it's so dragged out (laughs) yeah those happen so quickly and the edit is so violent itself that it's like a memory that you were actively repressing Mm -hmm. and zodiac is just like here is literally all of the information in as much time as we can make it so i think a lot of that is leatherface his character in this, insofar as he has one, seems to be guy who is watching the home front and knows that he will get in trouble if anybody comes in here and then leaves successfully. Yeah. Then that's it. Therefore, he is almost like the most harried slasher villain to me <laughs> because he's not going out looking for these fucking kids. Does he keep fucking showing up in his home? <laughs> like, get out. Dude, that first shit where he fucking racks that dude over the head and he falls down in the leg spasms. Cole yeah. and I were talking about that for Schindler's yeah. List. Anytime somebody Ugh. dies in Schindler's List, they spasm at the end of it. There's that twitch. And he does that at the end. And he picks up the body, takes him in, and the fucking door. Shink. The, <laughs> the original Saw game. <laughs> I mean, this movie absolutely had a huge influence on that entire series. Oh, my God. If Saw took more influence from this movie instead of fucking... Seven. (laughs) Just pieces of shit. So that whole first kill. And then it's it's kind of just this daisy chain where it's the boyfriend and the girlfriend and the other guy, and then finally all that's left are the two siblings, Franklin and what's the girl's name? Sally. I can't think of the girl's name. Sally. Sally. That's what Sally. (laughs) Everybody shouts everybody's character's name in this. Character of which returns in the most recent Texas Chainsaw Massacre film. Sure. Because people are so deeply stupid. In which Leatherface kills cancel culture. (laughs) God, that movie's fucking funny. (laughs) But then I think the tables do kind of turn when it comes to Sally who runs away from Leatherface after fucking icing Franklin, goes back to the barbecue shop and then realizes that the guy there is actually the head of the family and is no good. He's the one that really seems to delight in tormenting. He's mm-hmm. like fucking poking her with the broom handle and smiling. But he yeah. also kind of fights it at the same time, particularly fights it when the two younger ones get into it or anything like that. He's like, all right, all right, all right stop fucking torturing her. Let's go. Mm-hmm. But he really does start to get into that. We were talking about the Zodiac Beach scene. He's playing with his food a little bit more. And that entire dinner table sequence is just like, Oh, God. No. The greatest extreme close-up work since The Passion of Joan of Arc. Those fucking shots of the eye, dude, I ascend. I become a different kind of person by the time we're getting like all the veins and shit. Oh, my God. Yeah. Whole state should be condensed by the Board of Health, I swear to God on very different ends of the horror spectrum, but it's the same feeling that the climax of The Exorcist gives me, where it's just like, I stop knowing how films work for a bit, and I'm just so like right there with everybody in the scene. They take that rag, and the rag is like uh, a deep brown uh, color, and they just yeah. put it right in her mouth. I hope it was covered in Coca-Cola. I don't even know what, I mean, obviously it's like a mask and makeup and shit. I don't even know what they've got going on with Grandpa, but it's fucked. Yeah. And the fact that it doesn't look real is so much grosser. 
well mm-hmm. it's like it's like it doesn't look real and he's like a stiff and he's just like there and it looks like a like a corpse dummy or something and you're like okay as soon as he starts like moving and like moving his mouth and shit it's like ah no like, ah, <laughs> why is the prop talking get her fingies out his mouth <laughs> <laughs> Not fucking good. whacking her clumsily on the back of the head. Ugh, gets how feeble is just like not even really connecting. She takes two different jumps out of a window at like full speed, no hesitation. She's like, "Fuck this!" I love. Oh, yeah, like that girl after she gets to a hospital looks like Wallace Shawn's character in The Incredibles <laughs> after he gets chucked. I really think the ending of this movie is just like it's a little abrupt in a sense but the final like it's not just two shots it kind of cuts back and forth between him dancing in the sunlight and her in the back of the fucking truck covered in blood shrieking and then going that's cinema and like the sound doesn't keep going when it cuts to black so it's just like oh 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 i'm here it's like the first moment that you haven't been assaulted Yeah, Yeah. so like I still have all my limbs. I'm okay. It's the exact feeling of waking up from a bad dream. Yeah. You're like, oh, 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 Mm -hmm. okay. Exactly. It didn't happen. It didn't happen to me. It captures that so well. I've never identified with a man more than when I read that John Carpenter said that this pacified his soul. Like, I just, I get that. I understand what you mean by that. (laughs) Because it's the effect of all great horror really is. Just it so effectively replaces whatever's going on in your head external to that. Mm Mm-hmm. That's why I love the genre so much of just like Mm. the best of it takes you away completely, even more than any other genre of film can. Mm -hmm. I think particularly as Hitchcock came about and horror moved towards Psycho, I would almost make the case that like horror and maybe more broadly suspense and the thriller are like some of the most innate filmmaking genres, because at this point, no matter how shitty our sequels and horror movies and everything become there is a certain language and a recipe for how to build to a scare that makes even the lowest common denominator horror movies kind of adhere this idea of suspense adhere to this idea of creating a reaction for the audience and therefore putting thought into the image putting thought into the edit that i don't think is like exactly there for every single other genre like other genres can kind of fall below this line and just not have anything like that whereas pretty much any horror movie that you can think of after this period is going to at least be working to get you there whether or not it's successful and i think that's something that has always really captivated me with horror it has to rely on show don't tell in ways that other genres don't necessarily a suspenseful scene is not going to have a lot of dialogue typically. So it's just, how do we convey this with nothing but the camera and the people in it? And then what we're conveying, I think this is where it starts to kind of get into the great movies is what are these anxieties that people have? How can we tap into that with The Exorcist? I think it's a movie, uh, well, you said it really well, Morgan, about Chainsaw in Vietnam. Exorcist, Chainsaw, Halloween. Movies that could only have existed in the 70s. Movies that could have only been made in the 70s. Not just because of the filmmaking restrictions, because as we talked about, there are certain things in the 60s, like Rosemary's Baby, that's pretty similar. But it could only be about this time and the anxieties of this time and like mm-hmm. where America was in its state of pain and disillusionment 
crawling through the 60s just to have another decade of Nixon, Vietnam, Watergate, and everything else. Right. And that's why like the paranoid thriller kind of takes the place of the noir in this decade, I think. Mm-hmm. And you get, you know, cool all the president's men. And that's like what that genre's over there doing for a while. Right. And then when you switch around and you get into the 80s, you have a revival of those 50s ideas and there's kind of this resentment towards everything that happened in the 70s yeah which is why you have all these slasher movies about we need to kill the damn children for having sex yeah it really gets very reagan-y very fast but Mm -hmm. also there's some of it pushes against that very hard i think like nightmare on elm street is a movie that i've always loved the imagination of there's a lot of things that i really Mm -hmm. like i think craven is a name that's going to pop up on our next episode very heavily because of his stuff in the 90s and how he pushes everything kind of towards the 21st century but with nightmare it's like a very clear almost like thumb in the eye of that kind of stuff about like the sexuality of horror and stuff that just wouldn't have worked as well in a decade other than the 80s Mm -hmm. what i kind of see from this decade is that you get a lot of excess it's like the gore goes through the fucking roof the goop factor of like you know reanimator or uh, From Beyond, movies like that, mm-hmm. Your Guy, The Beyond, Fulci, yep. mm-hmm. like just fucking grody, nasty eye gore. People turning into bloody foam. Romero at his most detailed, let's say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's most meticulous. The Tom Savini yeah. era. Mm-hmm. Just these different guys, these like special effects gurus. Yeah. And I think that, in a sense, horror gets a little silly. I think that in the 90s is really where this more happens like the thriller comes back on in a big way and the violence in mainstream cinema and the anxiety and the fear start to kind of gravitate a little bit more towards those those thrillers and things while the horror side of it gets bigger gaudier and a little bit more geared towards entertainment people that want to go see friday the 13th for the kills because there's 13 of them and they're in the trailer yeah jason kills a whole lot of people compared to other slasher villains michael myers you got annie you got the couple linda and bob and uh, that nurse dog Mm. he kills a dog actually he kills two dogs see that's a great example though there's a moment where the detective or not the detective the sheriff and Loomis go into the Myers house and they're like, what's that? And they're talking about an off-screen dog that's like gross and fucked up. Whereas in the 80s, I think like you really get to where that gore, that nastiness, having that on screen becomes the point. And I think one of the centerpieces for me that really heralds this tonal change is actually two movies. The first one is The Evil Dead by Sam Raimi. The second one is its sequel, Evil Dead 2. The Evil Dead is basically Texas Chainsaw Massacre for Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> no fucking budget. Me and my buds and my buds are the Coen brothers. And we're just going to make a movie about uh, trees raping people. God. There's kids that are out in nature for some reason. Yeah. Getting fucked up. Go back to Detroit. Morgan and I and Jake, uh, we all watched Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 together. We've seen Evil Dead 2 together like three times. Yeah, it's it's around that number yeah Yeah. two really the cartoon nature of it really starts to take off and you can really see what i'm talking about where it like it gets silly it gets funny i think burton's a big part of this too with movies like beetlejuice yeah Yeah. which is more of a family film but it takes that horror imagery and it starts to move it in a different more self-aware and silly type of direction 
the undead Linda that's outside the cabin dancing and rolling her head is like, it looks like a Henry Selleck frame yeah. oh, for sure. when it's on. Yeah. And in a way, hearkening back to like some of the earliest days of horror movies, because it had yes. that silly aspect. And again, the silliness, the comic book quality, like some of the first really popular comic books were all about like horror. It was like horror based before you had, you know, Batman and Superman and whoever the hell else coming in. I mean, I don't know if you're building to this, but like Burton eventually did Batman and Raimi eventually did yeah. Spider-Man. Like there's a reason why these things eventually yeah. got connected. I think Evil Dead has like a really strong influence from the silent era. You can see it a lot too with Campbell's physical acting where he's doing things like the fucking somersault. He's like his hand mm-hmm. is beating him up. But even that first one has this like real like jazzy type of music and a lot of the imagery is just very old school you can tell that it's Raimi and joel cohen the ad really throwing out a lot of references and allusions to stuff that they like and stuff Uh, that they think is fun and it's also interesting the ways that horror comics were really deeply restricted in a haze code-esque fashion oh yeah uh, once those really had caught ground i mean you know have only really recovered from in the last 20 years or so and then with these movies it's like okay so let's bring that sensibility back but now let's add a thousand gallons of blood for every minute particularly with the evil dead with that first one i just i have to say it's impressive because compared to chainsaw which i think is very similar to it's much funnier it's much more Mm lighthearted. but it is compared to two it's nasty like that's a violent off-putting film in a way that i respect i think is really cool there's a hills have eyes poster Wes Craven. Mm. And I think that the tree scene that you reference is like, I mean, that's the last house on the left. Yeah. That is the exploitation mm, of like early Craven. Which is interesting because it's like Raimi, I think in interviews surrounding Evil Dead 2, expressed regret about the way that scene was shown. Evil Dead 2 mirrors it, but it goes much less for the throat in the way that uh, the first one did. Um, so it's interesting that like he has these exploitation tendencies, but Raimi's goal is always so much more to entertain than right, right. someone like Toby Hooper's with uh, Chainsaw or Carpenter yeah. with really any one of his given movies. <laughs> and I think that that's exactly the relationship that takes place is that horror movies become more violent, more people die, but that becomes much more the appeal. Whereas we mentioned Zodiac. So I'll just use that as an example. Every time somebody dies in Zodiac, it's like the worst thing in the world just happened because somebody just actually died. Whereas in Evil Dead, it's like, this is Khalif. We're having fun. Yeah. The guy who is like with Bobby Joe and (laughs) the crew that comes in later in Evil Dead 2 is like, none of these are real people. Yeah. Evil Dead 2 is Looney Tunes and Bruce Campbell is just Daffy Duck being thrown about in every single direction. I was thinking about this. I think he's got to be Elmer Fudd, right? Because the shotgun. And then the hand is obviously Bugs Bunny. Yeah, the hand yeah. is definitely. And, you know, the Deadites writ large or various yeah. ne'er-do-wells. I think the Daffy Duck comparison might be even more sort of on point, especially in the scenes where he's in the house by himself, mm-hmm. which just feels oh, like he just starts to crack he's up, just duck a mucking all over the place. Right. Like that's that's the first thing <laughs> yeah. I think of. I think of duck a muck. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing that loon cackle. The thing about the Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 in terms of Looney Tunes is that this is particularly true of the first one. I've been watching a lot of Looney Tunes this year, so I'm, this is coming from a place of knowledge. It's really not the Chuck Jones frizz frailing. It, this is like Tex Avery, Bob Clampett, yeah. 1940s, brutal, sadistic 
sadistic Looney Tunes, mm-hmm. where like Daffy Duck is a psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> he was. He was. If you've not watched a lot of Bob Clampett cartoons, I really have to recommend it. He's one of the most chaotic men to have ever lived. God bless. But yeah, that's the Evil Dead, and I think that along with like the endless fucking chain of Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, all the different sequels, kind of just takes horror to a place where everything gets moribund. The slashers, the steam runs out on them. Yeah, It's more stuff like Tobe Hooper's movies, uh, Texas Chainsaw sequel and Poltergeist that get a little bit more like wacky and free-flowing and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And that really kind of closes the book on what this chapter of horror is, where everything kind of gets more inside the mind and more intense and grisly. We start to see it kind of become a little bit more postmodern, a little bit more comical. A lot more commercial, too. And it's telling that, you know, like that first trend of slashers had to be revised, like only four years after Friday the 13th by Nightmare. And then by the end of 1989, especially, it runs out dead. But then 1996 comes along and uh, a certain right. phone call yeah. sparks things up again, doesn't it? Really, even before that, with the sort of reviving of A Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. itself. Yeah, but unfortunately, enough people did not see that movie. Yeah, there's a couple of Cravens that we'll definitely be talking about next week. Because I think that they're really what start to push us into the different trends, attitudes, and themes of the 21st century take us out of the 20th century for the first time so that's what we're going to be talking about next week when jake joins us we're going to be focusing in on morgan shouted this right at the top one of the most famous a24 horror movies to help kind of discuss their role in the 2010s and beyond in this realm of horror by talking about robert eggers the witch living deliciously absolutely the taste of butter the massachusetts classic (laughs) maybe like the Massachusetts classic for me. I don't know. No, 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 no. It's still Jaws. You got a point. You got a point. You know, Jaws is actually, I was literally just thinking about how there's a certain similarity for me between The Witch and Carrie. And Jaws and Carrie are two 70s horror movies we managed to just kind of glaze right on by in spite of yeah. uh, our particular love for them. So maybe someday we'll have to come back and talk about yeah. sharks and the late great. Hyper Lori. Mm-hmm. Carrie in particular is so deserving of like its own dissection. Fucking goddamn masterpiece. Uh-huh. We got through the 80s without talking about Stephen King at all. And, you know, there's always more ground left to cover. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. And for Jaws, we can see how many times I can say Shaq in an <laughs> episode. That will be topical and good for the atmosphere when we talk about Amity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this has been a riot. I've really enjoyed getting to speak to you both on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and all of the different little bits of context that help build up to what is really, I think, one of the, the finer periods in horror that really birthed so many great and memorable movies that you can have a full conversation and not get to carry, not get to Jaws. I mean, my God, we didn't even mention Alien. Right. I mean... <laughs> fuck Uh, almost a switch flipped and i think between about you know from psycho 61 if you want to put it there between 68 if you want to put it there and beginning of the 80s right around the time of the thing is just such a fucking ridiculously loaded period of horror movies it's so interesting there's so many great american new hollywood filmmakers putting their own stamps on everything that it just raises everything up to the next level and cole i look forward to talking to you on our next episode to see where it's all gone from there. Yeah, we're going to be hanging out in the woods for a lot of that episode, I think. Maybe some found footage popping up. 
Morgan, thanks for jumping on to talk about, uh, you know, a few 70s bangers. I seem to be exclusively on for the horror <laughs> episodes of this show. Hollywood notwithstanding. Including Oppenheimer, arguably. I don't know. Yeah. We talked about Interstellar. Yeah. <laughs> talked about Ten um, Men. That was a horror movie for me. Yeah. <laughs> There's no decade I would rather have been on for in your grand scale take on uh, the genre for this month. So happy as ever to be on when I am available and you'll have me. Thank you guys so much for listening. Do check out our past episode on Jacques Tourneur's Cat People. For those who are intrigued by Psycho, check out our Gus Van Sant episode where we talk about the legacy of Hitchcock's great horror film. And stay tuned for our next episode, as I mentioned, on The Witch, on the films of the 21st century. We'll found footage, little J-horror, little internet, I don't know, you know, just all sorts of stuff. Elevated horror. Makes me want to wash my mouth out with soap saying that, but I'm sure we'll find some ways to talk about how... Look, you can't get more elevated than the edit of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Nor yeah. Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, and a bunch of other shit that we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, you know, etc. Et but it'll be interesting to talk about the ways that these movies built to what we got later on, and we will uh, be discussing that on our next episode. So thanks for tuning in. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody. Ciao.